welcome, welcome, welcome to another Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. I am your host, Michael Canodal, and today's educator is none other than Alejandro Arenas. And the topic is thinking like a producer, making choices to better serve the music. I am so excited to hear this. This is a, a breath of fresh air. We're getting some new content from, from Alejandro and I know he's gonna give us some great uh, tips on thinking like a producer. So whether you're a producer today or you know you play an uh, instrument, you're a vocalist, or you just love music or love jazz, you're gonna get a special treat today. So we're excited. Uh, I want to remind you, if you're here with us live, uh, just go into that chat feature. If you have any questions, uh, please, please, please put it in there. We love questions. We love comments. And I will just save some time at the end to answer any questions you may have. And you know, this wouldn't be possible without our awesome sponsor. So uh, I just want to say, please be sure to check out the studio archives of past video sessions at clearwaterjazz.com's education education and outreach section. And that's brought to you by Blue Water Wealth Management at Stewart Partners and Duke Energy, as well as check out our Young Lines podcast available wherever you stream. And that's brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. Just search Young Lines Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. So what? where do I start here? I mean, we've had so many great sessions with Alejandro. I mean, just to name a few, and you could always go back for free to check it, check them out in our archives. Uh, he's brought us bass styles and approach to playing swing, funk, and more, playing Brazilian and Latin grooves. Uh, how about history of rhythm section, uh, collaborating among artists, uh, fun with arranging, and he's also done so many about what I love about series from Wilbur Ware and you name it. So full of knowledge. He's gave, given us some great, great uh, sessions here. And I know you're going to enjoy it. And if you don't know Alejandro, he is he was born in Colombia, where he started his musical career playing flamenco and classical guitar. Uh, also, he holds a bachelor's of music in jazz performance and a master's of music from the University of South Florida. Um, also, he attended um, high school in Gainesville, Florida. Um, he's played all over. If you're here in Tampa Bay, I'm pretty sure you've seen him on the stage and beyond. In addition to being an adjunct professor for the Mirror Program at St. Petersburg College, uh, he's very active here in the Tampa Bay area, and he's part of that awesome award-winning group, La Lucha. So without any further ado, the stage is all yours, Alejandro. Thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, so today uh, I'm going to talk about thinking like a producer. Um, of course, most of us as musicians are not necessarily producers, but I want to talk a little bit about how producers think and, well, how what they do. So let's start with that. I'm going to share a little PowerPoint here um, to add some... Uh, visual aspect to this so here it goes all right so <clears throat> thinking like a producer making choices to better serve the music so the whole concept of this uh presentation is to have an idea of what a producer does how they think and how does that um 
help you make better choices to serve the music that you're playing. Of course, this applies to most of the time when we're talking about our producer, we're talking about producing records, albums, or, you know, songs. And, um, <clears throat> and I think it's mostly understood kind of a more in a pop or rock or, or non-jazz context. But of course, there's been very, <clears throat> very good producers um, in jazz um, that kind of had a little bit of a different role, but uh, I'll talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about, first of all, what does a producer do? So in the scope of this, we're going to think of a producer as somebody that can provide a set of neutral ears um, for the musicians. Uh, you know, if you're in a rec recording session, it's easy to get stuck um, into thinking if a take is good or not. Um, and I'll expand a little bit more on that. But basically, a set of neutral ears is very important uh, to have kind of an, an objective view of what it is that you're recording and all that. So by default, it's somebody that helps with the decision-making process. So, you know, you can, as a band, you may finish a take and think, you know, somebody may say like, oh, I, you know, I made a mistake on this or something like that. And then the producer can say like, no, it sounded really good here on, in Booth or, you know, so it, it can be very helpful to have that, like I said, neutral set of ears to really see if they notice something like that or, or 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 if those mistakes are really kind of a deal breaker in the sense of that um you know and it can be somebody that can help can help get the best out of the musicians in in a session or in a band or you know we're going to talk about it too from the perspective of, of a concert there's concert producers as well that kind of put together shows they're a little bit different but you know we're talking about the producer as being somebody that has kind of a vision um to create something, uh, a big picture kind of thing of how you present something. So, you know, we're going to focus, like I said, a little bit on the album perspective, but how that applies to performing live and how that applies to you as a musician. And, um, you know, the role of the producer has really changed a lot throughout the years. Um, it used to be the producers in the early days of recorded music were more kind of record executives so they would go out and uh seek talent uh a lot of them were songwriters and they would kind of find somebody and this actually still exists in that sense uh where there's a producer that you know you can think in pop music that m they make beats or something and then they pair up with somebody that writes the top line which is the melody and um you know in pop music you find like five people involved in the writing of one song um, because of that, it's kind of like there's one person specialized for specific things, but you know, we're, we're not gonna, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but, um, we're thinking of the producer, like I said, more as somebody that's making choices, um, or helping you make choices to make the music sound the best. So in this case, you know, it can be somebody that can be minimally involved or become an essential part of the creative process. Um, you know, like I said, some of the earlier producers were arrangers as well. Uh, sometimes they would play on the records. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a role that's kind of, it's very, very wide ranging. So, but like I said, for the for the sake of this presentation, let's just see it as somebody that helps make 
choices um, and get the best out of the musicians and make them sound the best and and most importantly make whatever work you're working on being an album being a song be be it a song um, sound the best so this kind of answers this question why a producer so expanding on this musicians can be negatively negatively biased <laughs> meaning we can get down on ourselves quite a bit um, you know or the opposite can happen too where you can think that something sounded great and turns out you need somebody to tell you that it didn't sound that great but most of the time you know it, it can be something that you think a take is not good enough so if you kind of leave it up to some like some musicians to kind of make those decisions they, they they may go on for 30 takes um you know and the first or second take ended up being the best or you're gonna have somebody like i mentioned earlier somebody that's gonna jump in and say like oh you know i made a mistake on that take or i did this you know i'd like to redo that but then the producer is there to say like no this is this is okay this is good enough for you that first take was good <clears throat> And in this sense, the producer can help keep the musicians at ease with themselves and each other. So, you know, if you're spending, if you're in a studio and you're spending money uh, paying for studio time, you, you know, tensions, you know, if you're not getting the take or, or something, it's, it's easy to kind of, for tensions to start, start rising and, you know, things to become an issue with each other, you know, um, this happens with bands, this happens with, with things and, um, or some, some, somebody may be really in their own head about their own playing and not being able to perform at their best. So sometimes that producer can come in, calm that person down and help them trust themselves to make the best choices. And, uh, and they can also provide direction to a specific project, a specific song, you know, like I said, that can be involved with, with the arrangement, maybe not necessarily writing anything out, but suggesting saying, Hey, why don't you do you know, repeat an A section here or, you know, or bring the dynamics down in this section. So things like that. Um, so, of course, as musicians, if we're not in the recording studio and we're kind of doing our thing, mostly this happens live. Of course, you can self-produce something. You can, you can have that same approach when you're doing a record and we'll get a little bit deeper into what choices to make. But, you know, the way you can think like a producer can be either in a studio const context or a live setting, a, a, um, you know, a set, a concert that you're playing. And kind of some of the things to think about when you're thinking like a producer is being able to see the big picture, right? Being able to visualize how the work or works or collection of works, you know, be it songs, being, you know, just yeah, let's let's think about it that way. Think of uh, an, an album, which is a collection of songs, or a set that you're playing at a concert. It's basically kind of the same idea. Of course, you think about them slightly different because you have a live audience when you're playing a concert. Um, for the album, you're kind of capturing a moment in time, and you know, from the perspective of jazz, let's let's assume you're kind of doing an album where you're where you're playing live. Well, everybody's kind of performing live. And even so, this it doesn't need to be just that way, but a lot of these things apply. So see the big picture. So realize what it is that you're trying to create. Understand what a performance needs. So be able to make the choice of um, 
realizing you know what 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 does this song need what what does this set need you know sometimes it may be at odds with what you want as a performer and just realizing well it makes sense to do this here so i'll expand on that um then have a clear concept of what to present you know i think having a collection of works you know that are cohesive they don't need to relate to each other necessarily but you know everything that doesn't have to be packaged in, in in a specific like let's say commercial way it can be packaged in you know if if what you want to do is to present three songs in one hour where you're really really opening up in solos and all this stuff then that's a clear concept of something you want to present you know um I had this experience with uh, the living jazz legend Dick Hyman at a, con as a, at a at a festival recently where what he wanted to do was that, exactly that, play three songs in one hour and let each one of those songs just go different places. So he didn't really say like, okay, let's play uh, <clears throat> you know, this really contained song and then let's play this other song for 20 minutes and open up and then go back to a really contained song. You know the way he saw it he saw the whole con the whole concert the whole set an hour set as a way to explore and it was with a trio so you know he he was directing things but he had a very clear idea of what he wanted even though he was improvising within that he knew he wanted the music to go a lot of different unexpected places and you know for us as musicians it was also unexpected because we didn't know there was nothing arranged we just knew we were playing a song and that we could modulate at any given moment or or that we could change the meter or anything like that um and by the same token be aware of the role of the audience uh this is a very important thing because when we're performing for an audience whereas whether it's live or we're creating a record for our audience as a band we have to be aware of what role they play. I don't mean necessarily pleasing them, you know, because we have to have our own integrity as artists. And sometimes, you know, that takes challenging the audience. And actually, let's talk about that. The live setting and the audience. So, you know, playing live, it's easier in the sense that it's more organic. You have a, a, a you have a live audience that is giving you something is reacting to your music whether it's positively or negatively but they are reacting to the music in some sort of way hopefully <laughs> so that's the question you know when you are putting together a program i think you always learn from your past experiences you know whether you're playing with a different group or anything like that and this <clears throat> goes on this this goes from thinking as a whole set and also thinking even within your own solo if you're being if the spotlight's on you in a specific moment these are things to be thinking about too so think of what makes them excited you know sometimes what excites an audience is not as obvious you know you can think like okay an up-tempo tune or like a high energy tune it makes make 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 them excited but you know what if every song that you're playing is like that you know at some point they're going to kind of you know you tune out which is the next point what makes them tune out you know are you presenting too much of the same thing you know what draws them in so if you follow like a high energy 
performance with a very quiet song. It doesn't have to be a ballad, but something that plays dynamically and draws them in. That's that's a great contrast. Of course, you know, being that it fits within what you're trying to offer. So I'll give you a personal example. Uh, at the Palladium Theater in downtown St. Pete uh, with my band La Lucha, we played, you know, this was a few years back, but we had seen Tony Bennett do something live that we thought was really cool, which was that he um, was performing at Ruth Ecker Hall, and which is a big hall, and he played a song where he played completely unamplified, no mic, the piano, the piano player played with him, but there was no, the piano wasn't amplified either, so in a way, it was old school, <laughs> in the sense that he was filling this hole by singing by himself with the piano, and it was amazing. We thought it was a cool idea, so we said, like, well, what if we do that? So we were playing a bossa nova that featured me playing the melody on the bass, and I just unplugged from my amp, just moved to the front of the stage. You know, Mark, our drummer, just played with brushes very quietly, and John, our pianist, also played very quietly, and, and it was really cool because... You know, you could f hear the audience breathing, you know, and it really draw them in. And, and, and some people told us afterwards that that was kind of the highlight of the show, which was kind of the opposite of what you would expect. You know, like sometimes you would think like, oh, you're giving them this high energy thing. Like, no, sometimes it's, it's the opposite. It's that, that vulnerabil vulnerability of, you know, being completely exposed, but very quietly. You're like, you, they have to, you're forcing them to listen to you. So you know, thinking of things like that, of how to have some variety and draw your audience in is a very important thing. Uh, also, are they being challenged? Like I mentioned earlier, are you, you know, are they just, are you just giving them some vanilla ice cream the whole way through? <laughs> they know what they got from the first song until the last song and that's it. You know, there's some people that feel comfortable with that. There's some other people that want to be challenged in some sort of way. And this kind of ties in with the next point, which is, are you being honest? And what I mean by that is that you should be able to be fully committed to what it is that you're trying to present an audience because that commitment shows. The audience may not be able to know if you're playing the wrong note or, you know, if, if, if you've been transcribing Coltrane or anything like that. What they know is that if you're, if you're presenting an honest um version of, of 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 your music or whoever's music you're playing you know sometimes it takes i i compare this to acting in a sense if you're being hired to be part of a show and you're playing somebody else's music and it may be music that you may not be entirely connected to is not your first passion or your first thing but um you are playing a role at that moment you know you are playing that you are being hired to present this music in the, in the best possible way and you have to find a way to connect to it whether it's you know i don't know playing this movie in your head that you are playing a jazz club in new york in the 1940s you know uh or or you know a place in new orleans you know early new orleans and things like that you know i think i think it helps to kind of be able to be flexible in that sense. Um, so honesty, I think it's something that comes across very clearly for an audience. It's something they can really latch onto, whether they even understand the music or not. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about programming music. This kind of goes along with the same idea of, okay, you know, as performers, again, we can, this is why it's thinking like a producer, thinking like you're putting together this thing, you're producing this show or this album, and then you have to consider these things. Because as musicians, it's very easy to sometimes to just say like, okay, let's play this tune. Have you met Miss Jones? One, two, I want, and that's it. You know, there's no, you can just fall into this, trickery <laughs> in a sense of jazz and, and and that's that's kind of one of the things too that that it's um and, and not only jazz but any in any style of music you can fall into a rut you know can you can be like okay just going through the motions and and not be aware that you may be boring the audience or you may not pre be presenting your best so you know some things to think about when you're programming a set is are there too many songs in the same key you know, a little bit of uh, variety helps in terms of keys and, and, you know, minor keys versus major keys or, you know, having very similar chord progressions too. You know, in jazz standards, there's a lot of progressions that tend to sound the same. So if you're playing a bunch of, you know, like, are there too many songs in the same tempo? If you're playing a bunch of medium swing tunes from like about the same era, people are going to start tuning out possibly you know if you play one after the other like that it's very possible people are just going to think you're background music unfortunately um and we're also talking about modern audiences um i mean within jazz we also have audiences that are older that grew up in a different era of of of, of live music and they have different etiquette for that but we're also dealing with uh, general, you know a world that moves faster and people kind of tend to lose focus a lot quicker especially if you're in a noisy environment or anything like that. So, uh, so are there too many songs in the same style? You know, people, you know, if, if, if people are going for a show of like early New Orleans music, then that's it. That's what you're offering, you know, but, but, you know, kind of be aware of that. What is it that you're offering? Goes back to having a concept. Uh, are there too many solos? You know, that is, that can be an issue. You know, I, I think, you know, a lot of the times it's fun for us as musicians. I mean, I love to take a solo on any tune as the bass player, <laughs> but it's, you know, there are many times that I look at it, I'm like, this, the song doesn't need a bass solo, you know, I just, it's not because I think I suck or anything. No, it's because it's just doesn't, the way it's flowing doesn't feel like it needs to things need to get quiet or, or it needs this event to happen i think a solo is an event within a greater performance a, a grander performance and you know i like the idea depending on what it is you're presenting of featuring somebody and giving them more space to play their solo and then you know take the head out or or whatever it is you know think about those things they can be there can be too many solos even if people are going to see a jazz concert but you know are there not enough solos um which is the opposite question you know should you open up a little bit more improvisation should you have more events happening within this within the music you know it goes both ways i think everything is about balance in a sense and again it it, it this is just to this is not questioning that you should you, you shouldn't have everybody solo on something I think this is more say because there's tunes like let's say that you're opening with the first tune on a set and you want to feature the whole band 
that's a good place to kind of give everybody a little uh, solo to shine and then move on with the program, you know? Uh, is there too much space between songs? This can be an issue um, because you may lose the audience if there's too much space. Um, if everybody's like out there looking for the charts or whatever it is, um, <clears throat> that can be an issue. So think of how, you know, so you, sometimes you can even plan to go from one song to the other if, if things work that way. You know, you can work... I don't know, a drum solo in between at the end that can open up and then set up a new groove or some st stuff like that that you can think of. You know, like I said, you're kind of thinking more like a an arranger in the moment. But again, that's kind of what a producer does too. Um, are you giving space for the audience to breathe? So are you giving, the, yeah, are you giving them <laughs> a moment to recover as well? Space between songs is not necessarily a bad thing. You kind of have to like play with it. You know, it's like, in comedy, you know, say timing is everything. So it, it's the same thing. Like as, when you make a statement, time matters in that sense. The space matters. And and we'll, we'll talk about this actually space as well in a second. Um, but, you know, that is also something sometimes do you have, do they have time to process to what they just witnessed? This is my last point here. Are they able to say to to take that in what you just played and say like wow this is how i feel about this you know sometimes if you attack them attack them with something else right away and you don't give them time to process that it's kind of you can create sort of anxiety on them i mean you're not that responsible but you know saying those are things to kind of think about and those are, these are things that of course are going to depend on each and every performance individually but be aware i think it's good to make mental notes or even just physical notes um after each performance you do and observe how the audience responds to certain things so you you, you start getting uh your show or your set or things in a in a different way and in a you know you know you, you start shaping it to have a certain reaction from the people and all that and the other thing to think about from the perspective of programming album for uh music for an album is the same thing you know think that music in an album is going to be listened to in a different way than a live setting would provide so there's stuff that translates really well live that in an album might not translate as well uh because there's not that visual aspect you know so that's something to keep in mind and even sometimes when you record a video of a performance it's not the same as being there um so that's those are things to keep in mind when you're making decisions about programming music so now let's talk about the musician as self-producer um and what i mean by this is of course everything that i just talked about is is you as a performer looking at the big picture of a set of music of, that you're playing or an album. Uh, in this case, I'm referring to you as a instrumentalist or singer um, in a band or in a performance. What is your responsibility? What is that you're, you know, what, how can you think like a producer when you are playing, right? So these are some good questions to think about. So kind of like think 
your number one job is to fulfill your role successfully within a band. So what does that mean exactly? Well, let's take the example of a bass player. Uh, a bass player provides a harmonic and rhythmic foundation that kind of connects a harmonic instrument like a piano or a guitar with a rhythm, rhythm instrument, you know, be it percussion or, or drums. You know, the bass kind of exists between those things. It's a foundational instrument. Uh, you know, that's why there's so many root and fifth jokes about bass players. <laughs> but that is kind of what the bass player does first and foremost. But that doesn't mean it has to be limited to that. You know, the bass is a melodic instrument that can, that offers a different timbre to interact. So, and this, this applies to any instrument really. So let's ask ourselves some of these questions. So does every space need to be filled? You know, space is very important um, because it's, I hate to use this term, but like the whole, you know, thing saying the less is more, it's kind of referring to that is the less you do, the more meaningful it is when you do something. So having that space and, you know, if you don't leave any space in a song, if every, if every, if every moment that there's a space within the melody is being filled by somebody with something that pops out, then it loses its um, charm in a way or the impact that it can have. Um, so sometimes just letting a note sit there with sustaining sound is re it's really nice, you know. So those are things that you can think about, uh, whether you're crafting a bass line or whether you're a horn player filling between uh, a singer singing a, a melody. <clears throat> Uh, same thing for a piano player. Uh, or, so by the same token, does the music need more space? Because sometimes the piece that you may be playing may not require that space. So you're kind of asking yourself the question from both sides is, is, is important. Um, another thing is, am I stepping on someone else's toes? You know, so basically all of this is based around you listening to the rest of the band more intently than listening to yourself. Uh, that's essential. You know, there's people that actually per percentage, I think it was John Clayton or Rufus Reed that said, you should be listening, 75% of your listening should be focused on the rest of the band and not yourself. That means that 25% is listening to yourself. Because of course, you need to listen for intonation, you need to listen for, if you're a bass player or horn player, uh, you need to listen for, yeah, what you're doing as well, but you need to be able to be aware of how, what that role, what role you're playing within the entire band, right? If you're just focused on yourself, then you're just in that. So this is where this, am I stepping on someone else's toes or is someone else stepping on my toes? And what do I do about it? So, you know, in that case, do you want to force your way? <laughs> If somebody, if it's your solo and somebody, you know, let's say a piano player is comping too much, what do you do? You know, do you, do you just try to play more and outplay the piano player or maybe use that moment to say, well, this guy plays a lot behind me, so I'm going to play a little bit less because in the end, it's about how you guys work together. Um, 
And that's a very important thing, you know, to be able to, to, to make those choices. You know, if you have a band that's intently listening to each other, you're not going to run into those problems. And I, you know, I, I always emphasize this, you know, when you're playing, if you're comping behind a soloist, think of that space that you need to leave what, you know, especially if a soloist is improvising, you don't know what they're going to play next. So you want to be able to just have the right idea. So on how to interact with them. So one thing here I put are, are, are their frequencies clashing, you know, meaning if somebody's in the low, if some, if a piano player or guitar player is soloing on the lower register of an instrument, I don't want to create something on the bass that's too complex. That's going to clash with that low end. You know, I may, I may go move a little bit further up, um, on the neck or, or play less or, or do something that's going to clear space um sonically and the same thing with like a tenor player that's in the lower register i think as a bass player try, yeah and i'm using low frequencies as an example because that kind of tends to be the area where you're going to have more problems of clashing more so than the high frequencies of course high frequencies can be can have the opposite effect it can be like you know cut through a lot and and all that so you know, I know for drummers, it's 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 about making a specific choice of a symbol for a specific soloist or specific instrument. Um, same thing, what register you play a walking bass line on the bass, um, and all those are things to think about and how that sits in a mix. You know, this goes back to like the thinking of like an album. Um, should I imitate an idea? So if you have a soloist that plays an idea. Do you just imitate what they just said? I know there's people that get annoyed by that. <laughs> they want me to play something complementary or, or a contrasting idea, which is the other question I have here. Should I play a contrasting idea? You know, if somebody plays, you know, something rhythmically, something very clear rhythmically that, that kind of pops out, should you imitate that or should you just let it sit? Or you can play a contrasting idea. You know, if somebody's getting really rhythmic, you can do the opposite and play a, a contrasting thing where you leave more space. You play longer notes, um, and that way that idea kind of has a, a, its own place to live there. And of course, you know, there's more than one musician in a band, so it's not just about how you react. Like if I hear like the drummer and the sax player are really getting into like a rhythmic interaction and the piano player too, I'll, I'll try to stay out of it, you know, to kind of hold things down. You know, I'll, I'll play a contrasting thing in a, in a sense, I'm not really playing an idea per se, or I'm just kind of doing my thing, but I'm not taking part of that interaction necessarily. Um, am I playing too loud or too soft? Another thing, you know, sometimes if if the song calls for it, you know, you you need to play loud or you know you need to play soft, but you can go to extremes with that as well. I think you need to read read the room, read the band, read the song, realize what it is that you're playing. Again, this is all about making choices, making tasteful choices. If you think about it, and tasteful is a kind of a tricky word um, to use for this, but that is a very important thing to think about like you know when you're doing a fill make sure it fits within that you know if you're playing a beautiful ballad and you start doing some you know and it's being performed as a beautiful ballad without without too many you know 
craziness, too much craziness harmonically or, or otherwise, if you play something that's, you know, super angular and fast and, and, and really not fitting within that idea, you're going to make an impact. Absolutely. You're going to stand out. I don't know if in the way that you want to stand out, of course, if you're, if that's what you're going for, then commit to it. But, you know, think about, will this get me fired from the gig, basically? Um, and is someone being featured? So leave space for those people that are being featured to be featured. Um, again, this goes to the idea of comping tastefully or filling out, doing fills tastefully. You know, um, you can see many examples of wonderful recordings of the masters where, where these things happen. And when you listen to them, not, not only listen to your instrument, how your instrument is being played, but listen to how the rest of the band is interacting with that instrument and what everybody's doing to make things a cohesive performance. And this brings me to my last kind of point here, which is the pop conundrum. <laughs> I call it the pop conundrum because uh, pop uh, is kind of a dirty word uh, within jazz. <laughs> well, in general, in music, it tends to be seen as a uh, the, it's it people love to hate pop <laughs> or hate to love pop um and the reason is because there's a lot of especially these days there's a lot of music that's manufactured with a specific idea in mind with a specific idea of like getting the audience as quickly as possible but that's something that we can learn from you know if you think about it pop music sets trends and puts a lot of emphasis on hitting the sweet spot as soon as possible and that draws the listener in. Now, unfortunately, because of this, because there's, there's, there, there isn't always a good development necessarily, or an artistic development from the perspective. You know, it's kind of set, it's kind of following trends that work in a certain moment in time. A lot of the times, the music might not be as deep as we, as uh, jazz musicians or artists in general, would like it to be. You know, and that's why I, I think there's so much. Kind of hatred towards pop and 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 not seeing it as a you know i think a lot of people tend to see it as, as not a, as not a legitimate <laughs> art form in a sense which which is not true at all uh it just works in different ways but i think there's things that we can learn from as jazz musicians and improvisational musicians there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from that um first of all the hook placement you know hook placement is what hooks you in right and where it is in the song, where it happens, how it happens. I think that's important. Every song, every great song has a hook of some sort. It has a part that you can sing along to. Even jazz standards written, you know, that we're not supposed to have like a sing-along chorus per se, have very beautiful parts of the melody that, that people recognize. And that's why they are still around those songs, you know, after being written many, you know, 80 90 years ago you know um they still survive because of that because they're great it's great music it's very very well written music and there's pop music that's brilliantly written too uh contrast you know so the contrast is the same thing i mean you can just think of like you know i don't know think of how to present an idea this goes along with the idea of, of space Right when you have that space, then filling 
another place of space is the contrast you know so a, a contrast that you can create in pop music for example is having one chorus be quiet and be kind of with one voice and then this next chorus if you want to lift things up then you have multiple voices it's louder or the instrument instrumentation changes and all that and i think that's something we can use when we're arranging uh or writing music in jazz uh think economically save your musical ideas again kind of find the, the right spot to to make a musical statement one thing that always fascinates me of some famous pop recordings is that that they have like these little nuggets of mel melodic or rhythmic information that only happened once in the song and it's kind of like that's part of the song it's part of the it, it may have been like an improvised thing in the studio but it was so beautifully placed that it stands out it becomes part of the song even if it's not a melody or part of the harmony necessarily um <clears throat> you know this goes along with tasteful fills you know it's it's kind of like you know really be aware of what this song needs melodically you know if you're a horn player or a piano player do or bass player any melodic instrument pick your spots you know just because there's a space doesn't mean you need to fill it again going back to that uh listen to recordings listen to pop recordings and see how you can translate those production techniques and and by production techniques i don't mean like electronic sounds and stuff like that necessarily but listen to how they craft something i mean the the, the reality is that pop music reaches a lot of people and, and this is not just talking about modern pop it can be you know pop from the any era but it's it reaches a lot of people it touches people very quickly so you know not that you i'm not, I'm not saying that you should not look to be to do art music without depending on on success but i think reaching an audience with there's certain elements that you can apply to reach an audience and again it, this is not saying like copy pop music um this is saying how does this idea translate to improvisational music you know and to me it's that it's it's when you're improvising you're thinking of the song and what the song needs um also don't be afraid to imitate i said you don't have to imitate pop music but that's actually kind of you can actually imitate pop music in the sense of um again the production the production ideas but also if you find little things that work well in one context see how you can imitate those things to work well in your in what it is that you're trying to do um in in the sense of like you know even just having a chorus that i used the example of the chorus earlier but don't be afraid to take those ideas and and and, and imitate for me when i started playing jazz i came from i played you know classic uh, classical guitar for years and then i actually started playing a lot of heavy metal and one thing that i really liked was uh how aggressive how energetic uh heavy metal was and when i started playing jazz kind of like i wanted to be able to bring that energy into it obviously i wasn't going to start playing heavy metal riffs but getting that energy and understanding how that other music was able to communicate that aggressiveness or energy to the to the listener i kind of wanted to do the same thing when i when i started playing jazz and more improvisational music 
uh, and also consider timbre a variety. You know, the listener nowadays is used to a lot of different sounds. You know, if you listen to your average recording, you know, there's there's so many different electronic sounds, real instrument sounds, just processed sounds too, uh, sounds with effects and, and stuff like that, that can be a real instrument, even voices, you know. Most of the time you're gonna find the voice that has in pop, you're gonna find it has some sort of delay or reverb or something that not natural in a sense. But what I mean by consider the timbre variety is the same thing when you're playing jazz, you know, you know, to me, what yeah, I love like piano trios, but listening to a piano trio for two hours straight, you know, unless there's there's a considerable amount of difference in in in, um, in styles and, and all this stuff, it can be can get a lot of, a little old, you know, because we're, we're like I said, we just get so used to listening to things. And that's just my that's just my opinion. That's just how I feel. That doesn't mean you have to feel that way, you know, but it's, it's something good to consider. You know, we have effects that we can use, you know, like with my band La Lucha, I play electric bass on some songs. Um, I, I, I can use effects on, I use, I try to use the, the electric bass as a very different instrument from the, uh, from the upright bass, even though they're fulfilling the same role. You know, sometimes the electric bass will allow me to play some chords or or some stuff, put effects on it, and and that just creates a whole different. Um, you know, Mark, our drummer, you know, he likes to put a small cymbal on a tom, and it sounds almost like the clapping on an 808 drum machine, um, and it just creates this little difference in sounds that the that you know, as a producer, that's kind of what you would do on a record. You know, you would just say, hey. You know, let's make the snare sound different in this song. Let's make it pop more. Let's make the bass drum sound a little bit different here. Or, you know, let's those choices like that that you can make as a musician when you are playing. You know, so that's kind of what the whole concept about being thinking like a producer is. Is saying, like I said, look at the big picture, whether it's one song or a full album or a solo, or you're just your performance and say ask yourself some of the questions that I had here, you know, is, is this necessary? Does the song need this? Because ultimately we play for the song, we play for the music that we're performing. You know, we are an essential part of performing that music, but the music needs to be you know, the song or the album needs to be the priority because that's your vehicle. You are, kind of, a, or, you know, you, that's how you express yourself through the song. That's why you picked that specific song to play, you know? And I think as jazz musicians, sometimes we can get a little bit stuck in that idea of like, oh, it's just another tune. It's just another set of chord changes. And I think that's the worst thing that we can do to ourselves to be creative, because if we're just perceiving songs as being a set of chord changes, where we just play a melody really quick to get to where we get to improvise and show people the licks that we've been working on, then, I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves and our audience, honestly. So I think it's good to, 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 to think, uh, outside the box, you know, jazz can get very boxed in. If you let it, you know, it doesn't have to be, that's exactly why we play this music, but there's a lot of freedom within it, uh, where we can express ourselves and, but we can learn a lot from thinking from the outside, looking in, in a sense, you know, how a producer would perceive 
what we're doing. So those are just some things to think about. That's the end of the presentation, but just ask yourself questions and, and you know, see how you can continue to grow, not only as a musician, but as a performer, as, a, as an entertainer, in a sense, you know, um, how your album can sound the best, how you can take that to help you get to the next level. And again, this is not about commercial success necessarily. It's about, you know, looking at what it is that you're doing and try to see what's the best way to do it where the music is the priority. Well, Alejandro, that was an awesome presentation. I love how you challenge us to think out the box. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes with this music, we are in somewhat of a box and, you know, we don't want to uh, reinvent the wheel. But uh, there's so many uh, ways to look at this music. And like you said, as a producer, uh, just check out the different angles. And I, I think we can all um, uh, benefit from just taking back and just listening to what you said. Uh, so awesome presentation. So I, I challenge everyone out here listening to us. You know, there's so many options that we offer here at Clearwater Jazz. I mean, what if you want to learn more about improvisation or, or dig into this session lately, uh, later? You can go into our archives, which are free. Go to clearwaterjazz.com education and you can watch awesome sessions like you heard today share it with your friends maybe it's other students in your class that want to be a producer or need to kind of rethink things when it comes to uh, structuring their songs and you know just think out the box so use this as a tool and uh, it's here for you and guess what we love hearing from all our listeners, uh, or maybe you have a suggestion um, or you want to just tell us how awesome Alejandro is, you can always just email us at info at clearwaterjazz.com. We love hearing from our listeners and um, we would uh, love if you would share this and continue uh, because we love jazz, this music we call jazz. So until next time, I'm your host, Michael Kernodal. This has been Alejandro. And, and keep swinging everybody and keep sharing and have an awesome, awesome day. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holidays, Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Thank you to our friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present this podcast series. To learn more about the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Annual Festival tradition, other special events throughout the year, and our year-round education and outreach, please visit clearwaterjazz.com.